Hi, guys. It is good to see you all here. You made it without an ark or anything like that, so that's very impressive. We hear storm around here, and we get a little concerned because we're not used to seeing rain, but oh, there it is. And there it is. Check, one, two. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Jordan. Um, <clears throat> I am very, very glad that uh, so many of you are here this morning. I'm also very glad there's a ton of you that are at home watching and uh, not going to be out on the roads today. So thank you for joining us this morning. Um, <clears throat> I want to remind you that we started a couple of weeks ago a series of messages entitled Satan's Favorite Lies and the Truth That Sets You Free. And <clears throat> every week that I've been talking about this, I keep wanting to remind everybody, listen, Satan is not the topic of anything that we do around here. He is a defeated foe. He is on the sidelines throwing stuff at those of us who are in the game. He is not the focus of our attention whatsoever. And yet at the same time, we must not forget that he's actually real. And there's numerous people who understandably ask the question, even as Christians, and go, well, okay, is, is there really an actual devil? Is there really an actual person called Satan who is actually working against God? Or is that more of just a way of describing good versus evil and all that sort of stuff? And, and I keep thinking of all the different ways to think about this. And one of the thoughts that came to me this week was, you know, um, Jesus clearly believes in the devil. That's a really important point for us. Um, Mark chapter 4, verse 15, he explains the parable of the sower, right? And he says that there is seed that falls by the side of the road and that the devil comes along and picks it up and keeps it from taking root in our lives. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus says that hell was created for the devil and his demons. In Luke chapter 22, um, <clears throat> Jesus tells Peter, he says, hey, Peter, Satan has, has requested to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to pray that God will deliver us from the evil one. In uh, John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays that God will protect us from the evil one. So those are just a few examples of what Jesus taught about the existence of a very real devil. <clears throat> now, in your Bibles, uh, we see all kinds of names for the devil, um, and, but oftentimes he's referred to as devil or Satan. And that, that word, both in Hebrew and Greek, is the same story. That word basically means adversary or enemy. That's it. He's, he's telling us there is this person, this one, this created being, an angel actually, who is the enemy of our souls. He's the enemy of God. He's the enemy of us. He attacks us. He does everything he can to make us trip up. And Jesus clearly believes in him. And I don't know about you, but I think if we're going to call ourselves Christians, that is little Christs or, or followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, then we need to believe what he believes. We need to trust what he taught us. But if that's not enough for you to know that Jesus believes in the devil, how about this? The existence and the activity of the devil is taught throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It's our enemy, the devil, who's in the Garden of Eden, right? Tempting Adam and Eve. 
It's that same enemy who goes to God to seek permission to attack Job in the book of Job. The Old Testament, in fact, mentions him in Genesis, mentions him in Job, in Psalms, in Isaiah, in 1 Chronicles, in Ezekiel, and in Zechariah. All of those Old Testament books deal with the existence of an actual devil. 19 of the New Testament books also speak directly about him. He's the roaring lion in 1 Peter 5. He's the schemer that we're told to resist in Ephesians chapter 6. He's the one who will, uh, will flee from us when we draw near to God in James chapter 4. He's the dragon in the book of Revelation. He's the one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness in the gospels. He's the one who possessed Judas who led him to betray Christ. His appearances just keep showing up in scripture and they also keep showing up in our daily lives. So if you say that you believe the Bible, then you have no choice but to believe in an actual literal devil, an adversary, an enemy of our souls who has set himself up against God and against the people that God loves. And as we saw last week in John chapter eight, the devil is the father of lies. Lies are his stock in trade. It's what he does. But he is also a defeated foe. And we have to remember this, you guys. His fate is already sealed by the power of God. And although he is strong, he is stronger than we are, but he is no match for the Holy Spirit that lives within every believer. Thus, the verse we landed on last week, greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. But he is not going to give up without a fight. So we had better pay attention. He is that roaring lion that Peter tells us about. We're commanded to fight his lies with the truth, the truth of God's word. And that's the example that Jesus gave us when he was tempted in the wilderness. He consistently said to Satan, it is written, it is written, it is written. Let me tell you what the word of God means. Let me explain as you're twisting the word of God. Let me put it into context. It is written, it is written, it is written. And uh, that's the example we get from Jesus. That's also the instruction Paul gives us through his New Testament letters. He tells us again and again and again to watch out for lies and to combat those lies with the truth. So that's just introduction. With that introduction, let's consider one of Satan's favorite lies. Here it is. You ready? Satan comes along and he says to you, you will never succeed. You're never going to make it. It's a lie he tells over and over and over to the people of God. And like most successful lies, it has some basis in truth. That's why we swallow the bait. Because it kind of looks like the truth. After all, every one of us has experienced failure. Raise your hand if you've never experienced failure. That's what I thought. You just failed to raise your hand, so you failed there. <laughs> See, every one of us has experienced failure. Every one of us knows what it's like to have a goal that we fail at. Every one of us knows what it's like to set out to do something and fail at it. Every one of us knows what it's like to be defeated. Every, every, here's, here's proof. You, want, you need proof of this? Here it is. Find a one-year-old kid, 12 months old, 13, 14 months old, something like that. Every one of them's got bruises all over their forehead. Why? Do all parents beat their one-year-olds? Is that the issue? 
Why do they have bruises on their forehead when they're 14 months old? Because they're failing at walking. They're trying really hard. They're bumping everything they can get near, right? And you have to tape off the corners of your coffee table and you have to remove anything that's hard because they are bouncing their noggin off the floor all day long, right? You start young. Toddlers try to color inside the lines and they fail miserably. Teenage boys try to talk to girls without sounding like idiots and they fail miserably. How many, how many diets have you been on in your life? You don't have to shout the answer to that. How many New Year's resolutions have you broken? How many of, of your commitments to God have gone unfulfilled and you felt the guilt of that? How many times have you acted out in anger toward people that you care about, even though you said you would never do that again? How many classes have you failed? How many um, careers end up in the toilet? How many marriages end in divorce? How many goals go unachieved? Failure is part of the human condition. This is just part of the deal. As humans, we fail regularly. And so Satan comes along and whispers in our ear and goes, you know what? You're never going to succeed. Why do you keep trying? You are a failure. Just look at your track record. And after a while, we start to swallow that stuff. We begin to believe it and we start to lose heart. One of the greatest testaments to the existence of Satan is the... Depression, discouragement, and disillusionment that so many Christians walk around under. It, it, it's, it's amazing when you think about the fact that as Christians, as followers of Christ, we should without a doubt be the most joyful people on the planet. Can I get an amen to that? Is that true? We should be the most joyful people. How is it then that so much of the time, so many genuine followers of Christ remind you more of Eeyore than they remind you of Jesus? <laughs> they see a rainbow and they're like, yeah, that must be a cloud. That must be a storm. And, and the father of lies is right there to tell you, you know what, you're right, you're never going to succeed. And based on our collective track records, seems like he might have a point there. But it kind of makes you wonder then. I wonder if maybe we bought into the wrong definition of success in the first place. Let me try to illustrate what I mean. A good definition of success is something like, you know, achieving the goals that you set out to reach, right? That's success. So, so about 200 years ago, I married my wife, Christy. And... Uh, and I can tell you, I just came from a wedding yesterday. It's always so wonderful to look at the bride and the groom as they look into one another's eyes and they take those vows and they know that this is going to be not just the happiest day of their life, but the first in a life of absolute bliss where nothing will ever go wrong and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, I did that with my wife. We got married. And, uh, and we went on a honeymoon, this glorious time, this wonderful honeymoon. We had a great time together. I'm with the love of my life. She's got my ring on her finger. It's all official. It's wonderful. Now, now eventually you come back from that honeymoon. And when we got back from our honeymoon, let's imagine this picture, if you will. We, we get back into regular life and I go off to work, but all day at work, I'm thinking, man, I wish I was with my wife. 
So I know what I'm going to do. On the way home, I'm stopping at the florist shop, and I pick up some flowers, and I'm coming home to my new wife for dinner, and I'm bringing these flowers. And I walk in the door with these flowers, and bam, she hits me in the face with a frying pan. Not really. It's a story. But everybody's like, she's not here. I wonder what happened. So, so, you know, I get up off the ground after I, my unconsciousness and I go, wow, that must have been a dream. There's no way my perfect wife would do that to me. And I go to work the next day and I come home again with flowers. I open the door, bam, hit in the face with a frying pan. And that happens on Wednesday and it happens on Thursday and it happens on Friday. I just keep getting annihilated. I'm knocked unconscious every night. Now I had this goal. My goal is to have a happy marriage. But every day I get hit with a frying pan and I'm spending a lot of money on flowers that are going unappreciated. And my marriage is not happy at that moment, right? By definition, I'm a failure. I've set the goal. I want to have a happy marriage. It's a wonderful goal. It's a reasonable goal. It's the kind of thing you think God would get behind. But if your spouse will not cooperate with you, your marriage can have all kinds of strengths, but you are not going to be happy if your spouse is committed to making you unhappy. And I have to realize I can't control people. And... I can't control circumstances, right? So there are times when I can set goals and there's nothing I can do to reach them. And all of us know what that's like. Now, by the way, my wife is gloriously wonderful and she would, I don't think she has a frying pan, so it's okay. But (laughs) sometimes it is impossible to reach my goals. So I guess... That makes me a failure. Some of you would just love to have a healthy and pain-free life. But your body won't cooperate. <laughs> I'm going to get some amens to this one. Your body won't cooperate. Maybe, maybe there's some, some disease. Maybe there's this uh, chronic pain thing that you're dealing with. Uh, maybe it's good old-fashioned old age. And you just ache and hurt and you can't do what you used to be able to do. So I guess by that definition, that makes a whole bunch of us failures. But how does God's word define success? It will not surprise you that he defines it differently than our society defines it. In fact, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in your Bibles, New Testament After you get past the Gospels and then you get to Acts and Romans, you're going to find 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. And as you're turning to 2 Corinthians 5, let me set the the, uh, scene for you. Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church who by this time has sort of abandoned him. One of the early churches that he planted, he was sort of their, their founding pastor. He was the one who discipled their leaders. But after time and he was gone, what happened was other false teachers came in behind him, began to disparage his name, and the people of Corinth began to question whether Paul was even an apostle at all, whether he was worthy to follow. And so Paul writes us actually what we think is his 
his third letter to them, which is called 2 Corinthians. And he writes 2 Corinthians. And if you were to take the time, which you shouldn't do right now, but if you were to take the time and read the first four chapters of 2 Corinthians, it would sound like Paul was having a pity party. He over and over again talks about how miserable his life is. He talks about the suffering that he's enduring. He talks about the people who are rejecting him. He talks about his close friends who have left him. He talks about the things he wanted to do for God that God would not allow him to do. He talks about his suffering. And he even goes so far as to say, I would much prefer to just be dead so I could get to heaven. He says, I despair of this life. This is the Apostle Paul. I don't think he's suicidal. I don't even think he's depressed. He's just facing reality, and right now his reality absolutely stinks. And he says that he would rather be dead than alive. And then he, he really um, um, clarifies that for us in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1, 2 Corinthians. For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house, is torn down. He's talking about our bodies. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us a spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, this is after he's told us all about his suffering, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. So he's saying this again. I would rather this life would just end so I could get to heaven. That's my preference, he says. And then look what he says in verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home, that's at home in the body, or absent, that is dead and with the Lord in heaven, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Paul has a different definition of success than the kind of definition we've just been talking about. It's an entirely different way of looking at life than the idea that if I have a goal or if I have a desire and it doesn't come true, I'm a failure. He says, no, no, there's actually a different way to look at this. There's a biblical way to look at this. There's God's perspective on this and he gives it to us. He basically says that success is understanding that your life has one purpose and that is to be pleasing to him. To be pleasing to God is your purpose. And this doesn't matter if you are a uh, follower of Christ, if you're an atheist, if you're a redwood tree, if you're a rock, everything that has been created by God has been created for his good pleasure, according to scripture. We have been created to be pleasing to him. That is a biblical definition of success. Now, let's unpack this for a minute. Let's see how Paul did with this in his life. You're in 2 Corinthians, flip over to chapter 11. 
This is a well-known passage in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. We're going to pick it up in verse 23. He's speaking about those uh, false teachers who are claiming that they're really apostles and he's not. And here's what he says, uh, 1123, 2 Corinthians. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. And then he gives us his list. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Ouch. That is a list, isn't it? That, that's the life that this guy's living. Does that sound like a successful life to you? Any of those goals you would set for yourself? You know what I'd really like? I'd really like to be beaten with rods. That would be good. I'd like to be imprisoned countless times. He says three times he received 39 lashes. Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the scourging they did to Jesus before they put him on the cross. Whipped with whips 39 times. And the reason 39 is because the doctors in that day had determined that 40 would kill you. 39 is the amount you need to make someone suffer ultimately and still keep them alive so you can keep them suffering. 39 lashes three times. A day and a night in the deep multiple shipwrecks. I would just quit sailing with the guy. (laughs) Multiple shipwrecks. Not one of these things is made up. All this historically accurate stuff. He goes, this has been what my life has been like. You know what his life was like before he met Jesus? A walk in the park. He He was respected. He was wealthy, he was powerful, he had all of these things happening, he was reaching all of his goals, everybody thought he was great, and then he came to know Christ, and then this. And and none of us would look at that, if that was your life, you would not look at that and go, man, what a great life I've lived. Boy, have I been successful. That's his testimony. And interestingly, even at the end of his life, Paul finds himself in prison, which is where he spends most of his time, and he's awaiting execution. And he he writes one final letter of encouragement and instruction to his dear friend Timothy, who is his young protege. So if you're in 2 Corinthians, you're going to go a few books to the right. You're going to pass Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You're going to come to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and then 1st and 2nd Timothy. I know that's a lot of books, but they're all small books. It's only a few pages. Go to 2nd Timothy chapter 4. This is the last of Paul's letters that we have. It's 2nd Timothy chapter 4. 
And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, listen to what he writes to Timothy at the very end of his life. He says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says, I've already been poured out. The picture there is of a, of a liquid offering that is poured onto the altar. He's saying, my life's already been poured out to honor Jesus. And in fact, the time for my departure has come. And, and we know from church history that shortly after he finishes writing 2 Timothy, they come for him, they take him out, and they chop off his head. This is the end of his life. And he says, I know that this is the end of my life. Now, I just read you his resume, beatings and shipwrecks and prisons. And he says this, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. There is a crown waiting for me. Let me paraphrase that for you. I'm a wildly successful person. That's what he's saying. I'm wildly successful. Yeah, they're coming to cut my head off, but I'm wildly successful. What? Well, I've had the beatings and the imprisonments and the whips, and I've been stoned, and they left me for dead. I've been shipwrecked. I've been through all this stuff. Everyone's rejected me wherever I've been. They keep throwing me in prison, and I have been wildly successful. He knows they're going to cut off. I find this intentionally ironic on his part. I think it's intentional. He knows they're coming to cut off his head. They they didn't crucify him like they did some of the apostles. They cut off his head. He knows they're coming to cut off his head. And he says, I'm going to wear a crown. In the future, I'm going to wear a crown. How does a person who's about to have their head cut off even have a future? And in that future, how are you going to wear a crown? You got no head. He knows that God is who he says he is. He knows experientially that Jesus can be trusted. He knows experientially that God always keeps his promises. He knows that God rewards those who are faithful. He says, not only me, I'm not the only one gonna get a crown, but all who have loved his appearing. He knows, he knows, he knows from experience. And so he can face death without fear, and raise his hand as a victor. I am wildly successful, he says, at the end of his life. How can that be true when he's gone through all he's gone through and they're about to kill him? Because he only had one purpose, and his purpose was to be pleasing to God. And he knows that every one of those beatings came because he did what God asked him to do. He knows that every one of those imprisonments came because he did what God asked him to do. He doesn't lie to us. He doesn't say, oh, it didn't hurt. He doesn't say, it was fun, I enjoyed it. 
He doesn't try to pretend like so many preachers try to pretend today. Oh, listen, if you follow God, you'll have nothing but prosperity and freedom and happiness and everything will be wonderful for you. God will just keep giving you comfort and ease and peace. He goes, no, 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 I've been following God and I've gone through a lot, but you know what? They may take my head, but he's gonna put a crown on my head and I'm gonna wear that crown forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's success. And he knows it. My friends, our definition of success are too small, too short-sighted, too temporary. I'm not saying don't set goals. You, you, you want to set a weight loss goal? Good for you. Set your weight loss goal. Go for it. I wish you all the best. Want to run a marathon next year? Good for you. Get out there and start training. I'm all for it. You, you want to have a happy marriage? Invest in your marriage. Do that counseling. Uh, love your spouse well. Be uh, unselfish. Do all those kind of things. There's absolutely nothing wrong with setting goals. I could preach a whole biblical message here on how important it is for us to set goals and strive for them in order to honor God. I am not saying we shouldn't set goals. I'm saying that there is one goal that overarches everything else. There is nothing, nothing, nothing more important than being pleasing to God. And if I can live a life that is pleasing to God, I'm honored. Well, yeah, that sounds great, Pastor. But um, I keep getting hit with a frying pan. How about this? Lord, I keep getting hit with a frying pan. How can I be pleasing to you under these circumstances? Lord, I'm in constant pain. And I'm in and out of the hospital and the doctors don't seem to know what they could do for me. How under these circumstances... Can I be pleasing to you? I've only in my life had one significant long hospitalization. A few years ago, they discovered a heart defect. They said, we're going to have to do open heart surgery. You're going to have to go in and it's going to be hard and all that kind of stuff. And some of you have been through that. You know what that's like. And you spend a few days in the hospital. It, it caught me completely by surprise. I had no idea this was going to happen. Everybody's phone's going off. Are they telling us that we're about to float away? Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I can tell you don't have to look. I'll tell you what it says. It says, hey, it's raining really hard, okay? <laughs> so, but this is a whole message about how you can endure storms and still be successful. <laughs> so, so I'm in the hospital. You feel pretty lousy after they saw your chest in half. It's not that fun, so I don't recommend it. But um, I didn't want to be there. It was such bad timing. I had such important plans. There were so many reasons that I shouldn't do it, but there was no choice. I can't control circumstances. Here's what I'll tell you about those days in the hospital. I had more success of sharing Christ with people during those four days in the hospital bed than I had in the four years previous to that. It was as if every hospital worker that came into my room wanted to know about Jesus. It's like they're carrying a sign. Can, is, can anyone tell me about the meaning of life? I'm like, well, thank you for asking. 
I sat up all night sharing Christ with people, praying over people, nurses, physical therapists, doctors coming into my room. And all of them, I've said, how are you doing today? They said, well, no, the patient never asked me how I'm doing. We ask how you're doing. I said, yeah, but I've been praying for you. You've been praying for me? Really? Why have you been praying for me? I don't know. Why have I been praying for you? Well, actually, and they start to share. It was the most amazing thing. Now, I don't know how God's economy works. I don't know what he planned. All I know is, apparently, I was born with that heart defect. It took 50 years for my heart to fail. And after 50 years, God puts me in one hospital in a room with people who need to hear about the love of Jesus. And I get opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Guys, I didn't feel very successful laying in that hospital bed. I couldn't stand up and walk to the bathroom. But God was pleased. That's a picture of living life successfully. You say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to get by financially. I'm trying to be responsible. I've been investing in the stock market so that I have a retirement. And the stock market just crashed. How can I be pleasing to God with no money? I just lost my job. How can I be pleasing to God under these circumstances? You know, my my children have turned away from God. It breaks my heart to see them wandering from God. Lord, how can I be pleasing to you under these circumstances? You know, I I don't have the physical and mental strength that I used to have, God, and, and, and I can't do the things I really want to do. Under these circumstances, Lord, how can I be pleasing to you? Even so, how can I be pleasing to you? And you know what? There are times when I ask God that question, and the answer is not quickly available to me. I don't automatically know. I don't know. But I'll tell you this, 95% of the time when I'm standing at a crossroads and I have a choice left or right and I evaluate that choice into what would be most pleasing to God, 95% of the time I know immediately. We know what's pleasing to God. Unselfishness is pleasing to God. Worship is pleasing to God. Loving other people is pleasing to God. Laying down our lives to care for others is pleasing to God. We can be successful no matter what the circumstances. But here's the thing. Sometimes we're not. God, no amens to that one, huh? Sometimes we're not pleasing to God. So sometimes, even, even Paul said, the things I wish to do, I do not do, but I do the very things that I hate. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death. Sometimes we all sin. Sometimes we find ourselves well aware that we're not being pleasing to God. We are not successful, even by the biblical definition. What do we do then? I'm so glad you asked. First John chapter 1. All the way to the back of your Bible, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Maybe you've heard this verse before. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. Here's the beauty of this biblical definition of success. From time to time, you will find yourself unsuccessful because you know God is not pleased with the decision you made, with the way you're behaving, with the way you're living your life, with the priorities that you're living by, etc., etc. And when you become aware of that, you have a way to become pleasing to God immediately. It's called confession and repentance. Because confession and repentance are pleasing to God. You go from being unsuccessful to being successful instantaneously. Why? Because you're so great? No, because Jesus is so great. Because he's already paid the price for that sin. We walk around in the bondage going, oh, this sin, I'm so bad, I'm losing, I'm failing, I should just give up. He goes, do you know I hung on the cross for that sin? Let it go. Cast all your cares upon me for I care for you, says Jesus. Let go of your sin. Confess, repent, turn around, go the other way. You have a choice and you can be successful today. Satan comes along and says, you're a failure. You're never going to make it. Look at all the times you've tried. It's not about reaching a finish line. I, I talk about this all the time, so for those of you who heard me say it before, bear with me. The walk with God is not about a destination. It's about the journey, 100%. He's called us into a relationship with him. It is for that relationship that Jesus bled on the cross. And in that relationship, we journey with him. We walk with him. And just like the fishermen who he said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. As we follow him, he makes us who he wants us to be. It's a process. But you know what? You never get there. Billy Graham wasn't there when he died. Nobody, whoever's your most impressive Christian in all of history wasn't there when he died. And here's my personal opinion. Now, this is, I'm getting off a of Bible, getting on to Doug's opinion, so you can ignore this if you want. Here's my personal opinion. Based on what I understand of doctrine, I don't think you arrive when you get to heaven either. I don't think you stop growing in heaven. You're not going to become infinite once you're in heaven. Only God is infinite. You're a created being. You're going to always be getting to know him better. You're going to always be growing. You're going to be always learning. You're going to be always becoming who he created you to be. To be a human being is to be in the process of becoming. So forget the finish line idea. It's not about a finish line. It's wonderful to have goals that help us to stay on track, but the purpose is to keep us on track in our relationship with God so we can be pleasing to him. We can confess, we can repent, and we can be pleasing to him. You are the only thing standing between yourself and success. Circumstances can't make you unsuccessful. The spouse with the frying pan, sorry, Christy, I don't know why I said this. <laughs> That cannot make you unsuccessful. That, that, that your illness can't make you unsuccessful. Your challenges can't make you unsuccessful. That miserable boss cannot make you unsuccessful. That neighbor who's playing music at three in the morning cannot make you unsuccessful. Only you can make yourself unsuccessful. You're a child of God if you're a follower of Christ. The Holy Spirit lives within you and greater is he that is within me than he who is in the world. You're the only way standing, you're the only one standing in the way of your own success. Therefore, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. James chapter four, verse 10. Paul was successful while he was sitting in a jail cell waiting to have his head chopped off. 
He was successful with a thorn in his flesh that he prayed with all of his faith over and over and God never took it away. He was successful when he was rejected, when he was beaten, when he was deserted even by his closest friends. He was successful when the Corinthians were saying, we don't think we trust Paul anymore. He was successful when he found himself in all of those situations because he was being pleasing to God and when he failed to be pleasing to God, he confessed and repented. And he was once again pleasing to God. We too can have that same assurance of success if along with Paul, we will live out the singular ambition to be pleasing to him. So set your goals. Set all your goals. Set your financial goals, your physical goals, your career goals, your marriage goals. Set all your goals and strive for them. But make sure that those goals stay under the umbrella of the greater goal, which is to be pleasing to him. If we can be pleasing to him, we are by definition of success. You don't have to be a failure. Satan's been lying to you about that your whole life. The Bible says if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And therefore, your Lord gets to determine what defines success for you. You don't get to determine that. And he's made a way for you to be successful no matter what. Just live in the singular purpose of pleasing him. It's a lifelong process, fine by God, but just being in that process is pleasing to God. Stay the course, my friends. You can be a success right now. Satan is a liar. Let's stand, pray together. Our Father, we come before you as those who have been uh, in various ways all of our lives uh, stumbling. We've been knocked down. We've been beaten up. We've been told we're not enough. But Lord, you are enough. You're everything we need. You're everything we could ever need. And so God, we accept what you say about us, that, that it is in Christ that we're made whole. It's in Christ that we're washed clean. It's in Christ that we're made new and we stand before you as your creation. We lift our hearts to you, God. We confess that we stumble in many ways, but we ask you, Lord, to help us to change our perspective however much it needs to be changed so that our lives will be defined by our efforts, our submission to be pleasing to you. May you be glorified. And all we say and do, in Jesus' name, amen.